Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're going over the Godhead and Mormon thought. And we recently have been talking about different ideas about the Godhead and how the divine persons are related to one another. So we talked about, you know, the Latin Trinity, and then we talked about social Trinitarianism. Now we're going to talk about a Mormon conception of that. So we start out with the distinctive view in Mormonism that there are divine persons who are truly other to each other, meaning they're not supposed to have, you know, share a mind or share a substance. They're three distinct divine beings. So, you add, what distinguishes the Mormon view most from the conventional tradition is that the divine nature is possessed by more than one instance of that nature, and is shared with others through a freely chosen relationship of indwelling love. So now we're going to talk about kind of how they relate to one another, and in Mormon thought, the scriptures, such as D&C 121.32, make it clear that there is a God of all other gods. It is implicit in this scriptural assertion that although there is more than one individual of the kind God, there is only one who is preeminent and the God of all. Such language is similar to the New Testament language that the Father is the God and Father of Jesus Christ, which is in 2 Corinthians 1.3, even though it calls Christ God. The book of Abraham says that this God of all other gods is more intelligent than they all, from Abraham 3 verse 19. So, before we jump into explaining different things, we don't need to go into this, but maybe it would be helpful. How did this kind of develop? I don't know, like, because Joseph Smith was interested in Methodism. Do any other Christian religions that may have influenced Joseph Smith in any way have three individual distinct beings? To say, does a particular, like, sect or theological position within Christianity have three distinct individuals? The answer is yes. Social Trinitarians have three distinct beings in the sense that all social Trinitarians agree that they are three distinct centers of consciousness. So that, as as we saw last week, um, only the Son knows that he atoned for all sins, only the Father knows that he sent the Son, and only the Holy Ghost knows that I am the testator of the Father and the Son. So they have these first-person recognition. They share, however, in common all knowledge and all, so whatever one does, the others do as well what one thinks the others think and, and participate in as well, because in a sense they have a common mind in that the scope of knowledge that they possess is identical for all of them, except with respect to these kind of first-person reflexive propositions where they about what they know about themselves individually. So if you could have a chip inserted into your spinal column that gave you access to the thoughts of other people and then it provided all that information to your brain and you knew what everybody else was thinking. That would be kind of an analogy of the kind of mind that they share. What's most distinctive about Mormonism, in my view, is that the three divine persons are truly thous to each other. That is, there's a hyphen between them. They are in an I-thou relationship, and that is to say that they freely choose each other in relationship. They give themselves as a gift to each other. And it is this kind of distinction that I think is unique. As we've seen looking at the other social Trinitarian views, they don't seem to be able to make them distinct enough 
to be able to have this kind of other love for each other. And so there is this, regardless of how we look at it, remember what was motivating both Davis and Swinburne was that it is essential that the divine persons love each other with this kind of exalted other love. But when we looked at it, it turned out not to be other love at all, but the father giving love to himself through his own choice. And I think what distinguishes Mormonism is precisely that the divine persons remain free with respect to one another to choose to be in, in this relationship. We're going to see some difficult concepts as we go through this about, for instance, eternally choosing each other freely, concepts that surely will require some unpacking on our part. But that's what I find to be distinctive, and I, I don't think that there are other kinds of commitments that qualify that in Mormon thought. Okay. So now we're going to kind of move into your distinctive view, I would say, which is obviously not just you came up with it, but how you read the Mormon scriptures and how you think that they should be interpreted. And so the next section is titled Mormon Social Trinitarianism. So right there, you take the idea that we had last week of social Trinitarianism, although we went over the weaknesses of the different views, like you said, Mormonism can overcome that, but still keep the core idea of this idea of these three centers of consciousness. They overcome a lot of the problems of the others, A, because we don't have creation ex nihilo, so they can all be essential beings, if you will, rather than, you know, one being the creator and others couldn't exist, so we have that, as well as some other things we'll discuss here right quick. So let's start out. You say, there is only one father of all, one king of the universe, to whom all others are subordinate. But there are gods who are subordinate to this one God who serve him as one council of divine beings. There are and eternally have been three who have shared together the fullness of the divine nature. And like you said, we'll unpack that in a bit here. But, I mean, you know, we went over the first chapters of this book. You were building up this biblical view as well as historical views of the divine council and all that so that we can now build into this Mormon view because Though, obviously, the Mormon view of the Divine Council isn't exactly how, you know, the ancient pre-Israelite peoples viewed things. The precedent is there that there are other divine beings. What I'm doing here, I am giving what I deem to be the most coherent, the most faithful to Scripture, and the most inspiring view of God and the Godhead that I believe exists. And I'm doing it initially as, as we've gone through this book, you see that I've developed a hermeneutic of the scriptures to look at the fact that there is a, a father. Christ recognizes his father as preeminent. He prays to his father. He gives all glory to his father. And then we saw how Christ is the recipient of the gift of the name and the gift of glory from the father. And that the Holy Ghost is, you know, and the Holy Ghost remains, I think, somewhat murky, but comes out more clearly in the Gospel of John as a distinct divine person who is a testator, one who basically shares fully in the personhood of the divine beings. What's unique that I'm asserting is that there are three beings in the universe of all of those that exist. There are only three who from all eternity have freely chosen in every single moment in which they existed to freely be in a relationship of unifying love with each other. So this is the very basis from which we start. It's, of course, based upon and derived from the New Testament documents as they read the Old Testament documents. But it's also based upon what I consider to be a fair reading of, of, of the development of Mormon revelation. 
I, of course, recognize that the fact that there's continuing revelation means that as he grew, Joseph Smith learned and knew more at the end of his life than he knew at the beginning of his life and had a fuller expression. But this, I think, remains the view that Joseph Smith was expressing, and that's why I went over the Sermon in the Grove and the King Follett Discourse to show that there is still a head God and that Christ is the one who essentially has been sent by the Father again. I've developed a hermeneutic of these sources, and I'm going to make a claim, and that is that I think that this view is demonstrably coherent, which may be its greatest strength. It, it doesn't fall apart logically when you scrutinize it, is what I'm asserting. So the first section that I'm going through here, I do a good deal to define what I'm saying so that people can have a very clear idea of what I'm asserting about the relationship with the divine persons. Now, I'm going to give an analogy. It's not an exact analogy, but I want to start off with this analogy. And there's one thing that I'm asserting that has to be understood, and that is that the divine persons depend upon each other for their divinity in a certain sense. And that is that just as two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen are distinct things, yet when they're in a molecular unity, they have properties that none of them have individually. That's precisely what I'm asserting of the divine persons, that they have properties when they're in a relationship of loving unity that they don't have when they are in a relationship that is of alienated separation, such as when they leave behind their divine status to become mortal. We looked at the Kanadi Christology as an expression of that, and that it is precisely this unity into which we have been invited and is also the same source of our divinity. So I'm asserting that our divinity is of the very same kind and has the very same source as the divine persons have. The Father could not be divine all alone either. It is the fact that he loves first, but the fact that his love has been returned from all eternity by the Son and the Holy Ghost that makes him fully divine. And I make a distinction that's important, and that is that a distinction between full divinity and simply divinity. To be fully divine is to be in this relationship of unity so that all of the properties of divinity, all of the attributes of divinity are expressed when, when they're individually not in this unity. They leave behind this unity for particular purposes, such as becoming mortal so that, that for instance, one of them could carry out a mission of redemption. They are divine, but not fully divine. And so this is an important distinction that must be kept in mind as well. So when I'm saying that humans are divine, I'm saying something different than if I were to say humans are fully divine. So the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost from all eternity have been fully divine. We are divine, but we have not from all eternity been fully divine. The difference is that we have made different free choices than they have from all eternity. And they have undertaken a process to teach us how to make the choices that they have made by teaching us how to love each other so that we can participate in and enjoy the same kind of fullness of glory and joy and majesty that they enjoy. They want to share fully with us, and they have embarked on a, on a plan of teaching us how to be in full relationship with them so that we can fully share everything they are. And keep in mind that this is an ever-increasing glory as well. It's one that is, is always self-surpassing, always greater than itself in the prior moment. And so what we have is this dynamic growth together, and they're inviting us into this relationship. And the difference between us is not one of ontology. In other words, it's not the way that we exist. We all exist of ontological necessity in the sense that we've existed from all eternity and couldn't fail to exist. Intelligences exist from all eternity, and so do each of the divine persons. The difference is simply in the glory that we, we have failed to share in because we have failed to fully love. 
that's the only difference. And I want to make that clear up front. Okay. So let's jump in here. So you say, first off, your position is closer to the original social Trinitarian position of Cornelius Plantinga, who viewed the Father alone as properly God. So as Plantinga observed correctly in your view, he said, we have in Paul one God, one Lord, and one Spirit. I might add that Paul's habit of reserving the designator God for the Father and indicating the divinity of the Son and Spirit in ways usually other than calling them God straight out is typical in the New Testament generally. This habit, combined with biblical characterizations of the Father as generator and sender, lies behind Christian Trinitarian tradition, especially pronounced in the Greek East, of regarding the Father as God proper, as the source or font of the divinity of Son and Spirit. The latter two may be fully divine, but they are derivatively so. So, this is just back to saying there's a head god. We'll unpack that a bit in a second. I'll get into that when we go over the second view. But right now, like you said, you lay out some terms here, and I want to go over those before we can move on here. So, you say, I suggest that the Mormon view of the relation of the divine persons to the Godhead can be outlined as follows. So, I'm going to read this, and then we can discuss So, first, distinct persons. There is exactly one Most High God, the Father. There are three in the Godhead who have shared the intimate relationship of indwelling love from all eternity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are three distinct divine persons who are one Godhead in virtue of their voluntary indwelling unity. Each of the three divine persons is a distinct person in the fullest modern sense of the word, having distinct cognitive and connotative personalities. Each also possesses a unique material body. Because each of these capacities requires a distinct consciousness, each divine person is a distinct center of consciousness. And, you know, we've already kind of talked about that, but what else would you want to say about that? Simply that when we say that they're a person in the fullest sense, the term person, when when we get into Trinitarian theology, usually gets watered down so that what we're talking about is much less than what we mean by a human person. For instance, they don't have separate minds, they only have one, or they don't have separate faculties, they only have one, and certainly they don't have separate physical bodies. And that would be the next thing I would clarify. The Father and the Son each have resurrected bodies. They're fully glorified resurrected bodies. Whereas the Holy Ghost does not yet have such a resurrected body, the Holy Ghost would have a spirit body that defines his and we could say it is spiritual corporeal presence, and that's because in Mormonism, spirit is also a category of matter. I'm not sure that I can fully define in terms of present-day physics what that matter consists in, but whatever matter is, the Holy Ghost's body is made of that matter. One day, the Holy Ghost, too, will become mortal, will take upon himself death, and will then resurrect and then have a fully glorified, resurrected body, just as the Father did before the Son, and then the Son did after the Father. And so that's what we're talking about, about the distinctness of the persons. In Mormonism, the distinctness is very clear, very pronounced, and there is no way to escape it. And then two, which I'll have some questions, but I'll ask them after I read this here. So you say, loving dependence and ontological independence. So, the Son and the Holy Ghost are subordinate to the Father and dependent on the relationship of indwelling unity and love with the Father for their divinity. That is, the Father is the source or font of divinity of the Son and Holy Ghost. If the oneness of the Son and or Holy Ghost with the Father should cease, then so would their divinity. 
Further, it is inconceivable that the Father could be fully divine in isolation from them because the divine attributes are literally actualized by the love of the divine persons for each other. The divine properties of the fullness of deity emerge from the relationship of unity of the divine persons. The emergent divinity also deifies each of the persons in the Godhead, and each is thus a god in unity of shared divinity. The divine persons are essentially related to each other in a genetic sense as members of the same divine family. The Son is not only equally divine with the Father, he is the Father's Son, the perfect reflection of the Father's likeness and image because he is begotten as issue of the Father. The Spirit is the exact replica of them both as their joint agent and advocate. They are defined both in their individual identities and also in the kind of beings that they are by these essential relations. However, the Son and Holy Ghost do not depend upon the Father for their existence as individuals, and thus each of the divine persons has individual or deontologically necessary existence. So there's a lot there. Let's start with the beginning here, because we're going to have to talk about this at some point. So, you know, you've explained this before, but, you know, I still have time kind of wrapping my head around this idea of three beings eternally choosing something and one of them being preeminent and above the others and yet somehow eternally having that go back. So let me put it in this context before you explain your view of that. So because we have, you know, and you know, we may be wrong, but as far as modern physics and science is concerned, our universe as we know it at least with its current laws of physics as we know them did have a beginning. It didn't go back eternally with these current laws of physics, as, at least as far as we can tell. The Big Bang isn't necessarily, as I understand it, where everything began from nothing or anything like that, or even a charged particle. It's just where the laws of physics, as we know them, break down because everything is in such a small, compact space. So anyway, having said that, the universe as it expands is also eventually going to, at least as far as physics knows, we don't know exactly how, but there'll be some sort of end to the energy in this universe. So when we're saying these beings chose eternally to be in relationship, if you don't have an answer, that's fine. But are you talking about relation to this actual universe or universes without end? Or I don't know, how do we parse that out in a modern science view and, and, and just the logical problem as well? If one is preeminent above the others and they depend on him in some way for their divinity, then... How do we know that unless he was separate from them at some point? Well, those are two very different questions. So let me let me tackle the first very large question first. I've written a lot about this, and, and you can see this in, in a response that I draft to Robert Parrish and in my responses to the arguments for creation ex nihilo. You can find them on my website. But it's a very complicated. I've written more than 100 pages on it to explain it. So let me explain it as simply as I can. The universe is a misnomer. Una means one. And if you say, well, there's this universe, but there are other universes, then you don't understand the term of a uni. It's like a unicycle. If you call it a unicycle, it can't be a bicycle, a tricycle, or a quadricycle. It's a unicycle. <laughs> so what we mean by universe, if it's properly termed, is everything that exists in any way at all. Modern science doesn't limit the existence of all that there is solely to our pocket universe. That is, as you properly pointed out, where the physical laws began that define the particular universe in which we find ourselves. Modern cosmology predicts, based upon quantum theory, that there are all kinds of other pocket universes besides ours. 
they all reside within what we can call um, the ultimate chaos, and that is the quantum vacuum in which virtual particles flash in and out of existence and may be the source of universes. But the bottom line is, is that it's a very large question to ask me exactly how the universe is, is ordered and what God's relationship is to all of the pocket universes, because we can't describe that scientifically. Does he transcend that, I would imagine you say eternal, I'm just saying most people in their mind are like are picturing our universe as it is now, not necessarily putting into that thought that as we know it, it had a beginning. I really mean eternal. I mean it doesn't have a beginning, no matter how far back you go before that God actually existed. And God is the source of order of the pocket universes within the universe. We now call that all the universes together, the multiverse. So this is a very large question, but God transcends the limitations of the space-time continuum of a pocket universe. In relation to each pocket universe, he would have a time metric in which he can find himself. And so describing that relationship and how it happens is impossible because the laws of physics break down and we don't have any mathematical equations that can explain it. So this may be something where, where we just have to admit that the cognitive limitations that we have and our limitations in expression just don't allow us to go further than simply saying that God transcends our pocket universe and has, has existed eternally without beginning. Okay, fair enough. I just wanted to clarify that that's what you meant by that. So that's fine. And then, then, then the second question as well, if you would, just like explain it how you can. I know I've asked this before, but I still, again, I can't, at least as we have it defined in our language, it, I, I can't uh, wrap my head around this concept of people eternally making a choice without it happening at a, some first instance. And if the Father is the source of divinity, but they've always made this choice, there's no way to actually know that because how do we know one of the other ones isn't the source of it because there's no way to know who came first, right? But that's a limitation based upon your experience. Everything that you've experienced has a beginning and will have an end, by the way. So to imagine something that exists eternally is, is I mean, it, it should boggle the mind because the, our brain only knows a beginning and an end, and I don't think it's going to comprehend something beyond that. But what we're talking about is this. In each moment of the universe in which they could make the decision to love each other, they have made that decision. In each moment of the universe's eternal existence, they've made that decision. And in each moment of the universe, there was a prior moment in which the Father offered his love and the next moment in which the divine persons returned his love. No matter how far you back, there's a prior moment to that moment. And in that moment, the, the Father is offering his love. And in the next moment, the, the Son and Holy Ghost are returning that love, and so on. So when we get into eternities, we have these kinds of paradoxes that seem strange to us. There's nothing logically incoherent about what I'm asserting. It should boggle the mind. And, you know, it shouldn't bother us that it boggles our mind. We, we understand perfectly well why it boggles our mind. But the fact is that there's nothing logically or impossible or even physically impossible in people choosing in each moment that they can to love each other. It's that simple. Okay, fair enough at this point. Well, is there anything else about the second point about the loving dependence and ontological independence that you want to draw out? Because there's a lot of other stuff in there that I didn't talk about. Yeah. yeah, so what it means is that divinity is contingent. It's contingent on the free choice that they each make to freely love each other. And so it's logically possible that the Godhead could cease to exist as the Godhead. What's not logically possible is that they cease to exist as individuals because their individual existence is necessary. And so we have this contingent existence of a Godhead. However, 
the fact that it has logical contingent existence doesn't mean that it is capricious or precarious. And that is because the divine persons, even though they freely choose to love each other, they are also omniscient. And an omniscient being would see that the most fulfilling kind of existence that is possible is the fully indwelling loving relationship that they possess. And it would be sheer stupidity of the of the most profound kind to choose misery when one could choose the greatest happiness that exists. And so because they are wise and omniscient, a wise and omniscient being will always see that it is the best choice to make and make that choice. I think that ought to clarify that. All right, then... Next is divinity. You say godhood, or the divine nature, is the immutable set of essential properties necessary to be divine. There is only one godhood, or divine essence, in this sense. Each of the distinct divine persons shares equally this set of great-making properties, which are severally necessary and jointly sufficient for their possessor to be divine. Each of the divine persons has this essence, though none is simply identical with it, All of the divine persons, or gods, belong to the same genus or kind as the one god in the sense that they equally possess the same divine nature. So to have a nature means that you have certain capacities. So if we have a a son, you're my son, you have the same basic status that I do, but more than that, you're the same genus or kind, you're a human being. When you were a little whippersnapper, even though you don't remember it, you couldn't talk. You couldn't think. All you did was dribble, and we had to clean up a lot of diapers. You couldn't control a lot of things that you can control now. That didn't mean that you weren't a human being just because you didn't have all the properties that you now have as an adult human being. What it means is that some of those properties are properties of potentials and capacities. And so what I'm asserting We are of the divine kind, but there are certain respects in which we are not fully mature as the divine kind. And to become fully mature, it's not like I simply wait around and, you know, if I just grow up, someday I'll be a god. This is the kind of view that a lot of Mormons have about divinity. And that is that God is like a guy down the street just a long time ago. What we mean by divinity, because the properties of divinity are actuated, there's another term I ought to explain a little bit, and that's emergence. So the properties of water emerge from the relationship of the atoms of hydrogen and oxygen. I assert and and would argue that the properties of consciousness emerge from the functionality and properties of our brain. And so what emerges is not identical to, it's not the same thing as the brain, because consciousness isn't just a, a blob of matter in the head. If you don't believe me, I'll just point out that a person could have a brain in their head when they're dead, but that doesn't mean that they have consciousness. There's a difference between a living brain and a dead brain. What's different is the way that the parts interact with one another. So an emergent reality is one that we could say depends on an underlying substance or substrate, but which is not identical to it in its properties, depends on it. But in this instance, you can't fully explain merely from the properties of the underlying substrate what the properties are that will emerge. So just by looking at hydrogen and oxygen, I'm not sure that you could fully predict the properties of water. Maybe you can. I'm much more certain that you can't predict the properties of consciousness based upon looking at the parts of the brain. So it's, it's non-reductive. And so emergence is this over and above that transcends the substrate from which it arises. I just wanted to make that clear. It's a tough notion. Emergence is a large area of philosophy, but it's a concept that I use, and I just wanted to express it a little more. Okay, fine. And then tell me if this works, because... 
I think we'll talk about this later in the chapter, but I'll just bring it up now. And it has to do with human divinity as well. And we'll get into that more, obviously. But the Mormon view is that, I don't know, I guess there's a lot of qualification needs to go into it. But, you know, I assume most listeners already know, you know, the Mormon view is that we are also eternal probably divine beings, but like you say, on a different continuum, we're at a different place of the continuum than God is. So you clarify that, you know, there's like the seed of an oak tree has the potential to become a giant tree, but it's not realized that potential yet. But since you're saying that it's not just waiting around and or it's not something that you're assured to grow into, as in, you know, a lot of people think like, oh, if we just keep going long enough, eventually... That's what we grow up to be. I don't know. I just thought of a different analogy that I've used before, but maybe not in this context. So it could be more like this. So humans have lots of capacities to do different things. I mean, maybe not everyone, but just for sake of this analogy, let's say any human has the capacity, if they learned and trained hard enough, to become a ninja master. By no means is someone guaranteed to become a ninja master by any natural waiting around or growing into it. They have to seek out, you know, a teacher and then learn the steps to, you know, and and perfect themselves in that training. And then only then can they realize this potential they have to be a ninja master. It's not anything that will ever naturally come to anyone. They have to work at it. But they do have the potential because they have a working body, I guess. Does that work better? I don't know. I thought it made more sense because an oak tree is going to grow into, you know, if as long as it survives long enough, it's going to be a tree or the seed will become a tree. But that's not what you're saying here. You're saying divinity, like full the fullness of divinity is shared there. Maybe this is jumping ahead too much, but is not something that's guaranteed, but only those who choose into it will be able to achieve it. Kind of like you can, you could be a karate master, but if you don't train at it, you never will be. Yeah, I would say that. The deficit of the analogy is that it can be done all along. A better analogy would be that I have the capacity to be a really good husband. I can't be husband all by myself, and I can't be a really good husband unless I work at it. And it would be a choice to be a really good husband. And so being a really good husband doesn't depend on my wife returning my love for me, but it sure would help. But in any event, and she does, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that my wife doesn't fully love me. I'm loved way more than I deserve. But the bottom line is that. The necessary element of divinity is this kind of relationality. There is no divinity all on one's own. Divinity is necessarily a communal property. And that's an important point. It's essential for this view of the social trinity. And I think it's what Christianity is getting at in its essence. And that's what makes this so valuable and inspiring, is that the real focus is on the nature of interpersonal relationships and the way that we treat each other and are kind to each other and share our lives with each other. Now, there's another concept that probably needs some unpacking, and that's the notion of interpenetration or being indwelling, because usually two things don't indwell in each other. I mean, if you've got two cue balls and they sit side by side, they have a relation to each other, but they don't indwell in each other. But if you think of it differently, say I've got a flashlight and you shine it at me and you've got a flashlight and you shine it, then the light gets combined and the light kind of interpenetrates and magnifies the light between us, okay? So that's that's an idea. The, the usual analogy from the medieval times and, and used by Gregory Palamas, who is an orthodox thinker, is that the spoon participates in the nature of the sun when the spoon is warmed 
And to the extent that a spoon is irradiated by heat, I mean, light and heat actually enter into the spoon, it's indwelled by the light of the sun. And so it participates in the nature of the sun to the extent it gets heated up. So there's another analogy. Yeah, that's the next point is indwelling unity. So let me just read what you wrote there real quick. So you said, the divine persons actualize the divine nature by virtue of a voluntary relationship of indwelling love or perichoresis, which refers back to what we talked about last time with Stephen Davis's view. Uh, perichoresis with each other. So, the divinity of the divine persons falls short of identity, but is intensely more intimate than merely belonging to the same class or genus. There are distinct divine persons, but not separated or independent divine persons. Because the divine persons have access to the mental states of each other, they are fully transparent to each other, and in the divine life there are no barriers between the persons. And thus, there is no alienation, isolation, insulation, secretiveness, or aloneness. The divine persons exist in a unity that includes loving, interpenetrating, and intersubjective awareness of another who is also in oneself. The divine persons somehow spiritually extend their personal presence, awareness, and power to dwell in each other and thus become one in each other. Thus, the divine persons, as one Godhead, logically cannot experience the alienation and separation that characterizes human existence. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost have freely chosen to be in this relationship of indwelling unity in each moment for all eternity. So, and we'll get into this in a second, but we're, you know, we're also talking about human deification eventually here, so. Just let me clarify something, okay? Usually Mormons express the unity of the Godhead by saying they're one in purpose. And that's because Joseph Smith said that. But it clearly isn't sufficient. It may, be, it may be necessary, but not sufficient to be divine, and here's why. I was once on a, on, I've been on several football teams, and on every football team I was on, we all had one single purpose, and that was to win all the games we could. But having a single purpose didn't make us divine. In fact, I'd say we were very far from it. So having a unity of purpose, obviously, on its face, is not going to be sufficient to express the kind of relationship of divinity that we're talking about here. The kind of relationship that we're talking about is this kind of intersubjective indwelling of glory and life in each other. Now, to fully grasp the notion of indwelling, we have to grasp the notion of zoe, or, or the Greek word for life. They believed it was a life force. It was a kind of energy that gave life to things. So, like, the best way to think about that is literally all life on earth derives from the light of the sun. So, for instance, the, the leaves and the trees develop through photosynthesis. The chlorophyll and the basis for energy in the animals that eat the plants and the carnivores eat those animals and get the, the energy from the meat. But literally, in this sense, everything has its source in the energy that interpenetrates into the cells and is captured in the cells. And so that gives you an idea of the notion of Zoe. I mean, we'd like to say, well, that's just kind of a, a foolish ancient idea that nobody accepts anymore. But there is this kind of radiating energy that is the source of life. And so to that extent, it's totally correct. But even if it weren't, it's important to understand the concept as it functioned in the scriptures. Okay. And yeah, and it's important to point out that, you know, obviously, whatever it is that how they indwell, we with whatever we understand of science and physics, you know, we don't have a way to explain that, obviously. But it's what the scriptures are asserting, so everything that we talk about is just going to be a metaphor that falls short at some point, but, you know, they end well, and that's important. And maybe even more so in the Mormon concept, because everything 
is even spirit is material and so you know somehow happens anyway fifth one is deification and we're going to unpack this one a whole lot more so i'll just read it and then we can probably move into the next section or you can say whatever you want but we don't need to talk about it a lot now humans may share the same fullness of divinity as the divine persons in the godhead through grace by becoming one with the divine persons in the same sense that they are one with each other However, humans are eternally subordinate to and depend on their relationship of loving unity with the divine persons for their status as gods. By acting as one with the Godhead, deified humans will share fully in the divine nature, including the attributes of knowledge, power, and glory. There are divine persons or gods other than the Father who are subordinate to the one God in senses that you say you will explain. So there's a lot there. Is there anything you want to say about that just up front? You know, we have whole chapters about that later. but Yeah, no, we'll be discussing this at greater length. I impact this later in this chapter and in the chapters to follow. So, Okay, so next we're going to have Jacob move into these other two sections. We're dividing this chapter in two, just as you can tell, there's a lot to talk about here. So, Jacob, if you would, take on the next section. All right. The next section is called The Logical Problem of the Trinity and Mormon Thought. So let's start off by talking a little bit about metaphysical monotheism and Mormonism. Metaphysical monotheism is the views that we've reviewed, that there is one creator, and that everything that exists slices into created and creator. God is the only thing on the side of the creator, and everything else is on the other side. And so there can only be one God because there's only one creator of everything, because everything that isn't God is created by him. So necessarily, uh, metaphysically, there can be only one God in this sense if he creates everything out of nothing. And in that sense, one only fully divine being. Yeah, and obviously the notion that there's a creator doesn't give us all the attributes of God. But what it does give us is this is what I would call metaphysical, because the argument I've just made is a metaphysical argument. It arises from Aquinas' second way of causal argument that he makes for the existence of God. Okay. Now, you go through uh, a few steps here and show where the logical problem is, you know, going into the metaphysical monotheism. Number one, there's exactly one most high God. Number two, the Father is identical to the most high God. Number three, the Father, Son, and Spirit are each equally and fully divine. Number four, the Son is not identical to the Father, and neither one is identical to the Spirit. These propositions are not inconsistent. Any three of them is consistent with the fourth. Remember the argument for the logical problem of the Trinity. We showed that accepting any one of the four premises would result in a contradiction with having to deny the fourth. But I've just given you four premises that are each taken to be true on the view of the Godhead that I've elucidated, and they are each fully consistent with each other. The real problem arises only when we add a fifth premise that is the definition of metaphysical monotheism. Okay. A problem arises we add the fifth premise, which is, if X fully possesses the divine nature, then necessarily X is the single instance of the kind divine. And that would be, in essence, the metaphysical monotheism, right? If we only have one single instance of the kind divine. Right. And so if we accept number five, then you can take any three of the other premises and, and it will be inconsistent. So if we say that there is one most high God, and that there's only one of the kind God, and that the Father is the Most High God, then it's inconsistent with both three and four. The Son could not possibly fail to be identical with the Father if that's the case, and so premise four would be false. 
the Father, Son, and the Spirit could not each be fully divine because there's only one of one instance of the kind divine. What I give this argument to show is what generates the logical problem of the Trinity is the assumption of metaphysical monotheism. That's the real problem. It's not the Trinity per se. It's metaphysical monotheism that's the problem. Now let's get a little bit into, um, and this kind of goes more into point three there, how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all equally and fully divine. For if we have a most high God, uh, yet everyone is fully divine, let's get a little bit into how that uh, that works. And you say here, the divine nature can be fully possessed by the Son, and yet the Son can be subordinate to the Father in authority and sovereignty, because he always honors the Father's will. Just as I can always agree with and subordinate my will to my own Father's, and yet be equally human with him, the Son can be subordinate to the Father, and yet be equally divine. Yeah, as long as the subordination is recognized not to be regarding ontology, we don't have a problem. And so what we say is that the Son is subordinate to the Father in a specific sense. He's subordinate in his sovereignty. The Father is recognized as as the full sovereign. He's the one to whom all glory and authority is given. And so, you know, that's just very clearly what Christ taught. So there's a thoroughgoing subordinationism in Paul's writings and in the Gospel of John and clearly a subordinationism of a sort in the Synoptic Gospels. And as I read the scriptures, this is a very fully biblical view, or at least with the New Testament. And if we're careful about the ways in which the the Son and the Holy Ghost are subordinate to the Father, they still are equally divine. They each possess all of the fullness of each of the divine attributes equally. And it's more of this agreement that they have. Remember what Joseph Smith said is, is that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost had an agreement. The agreement was essentially that the Son and the Holy Ghost have have agreed to recognize the ultimate authority of the Father in all things. They give it to him. It's part of the nature of the love that they give to him. And the Father, in this sense, is the generator of divinity. It's because they have returned his love that they share in, in the fullness of divinity. So there's no problem here. They can each have a fullness of divinity. They can each have all of the properties of divinity and Remember, that means like they have maximal power, maximal knowledge. They're omnipresent in the sense that I've defined. When we looked at the attributes of God, the reason that we can now have this conversation is we've defined what that means to make sense of this so that we can now say that the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are equally divine. They're all fully divine in the most complete sense, even though they surpass themselves in each new moment. And yet the Father is in this sense recognized as the source and fount of divinity, and he is superior in authority and sovereignty. I just had a question about that that I wrote here, and and so I was like, well, does it, I don't know, like, again, it might just be a weird logical thing I can't wrap my head around as far as, like, comparing it to something that I do understand, but I just wrote down, like, well, if you had someone that was, like, a CEO, and then he was like, hey, you can be the co-CEO, we'll be equal in power, as long as you do everything I say, then you don't really have equal power because he still has all the power. You have to do everything he says. So that's not equal at all. That's just words. Well, let's put it in this term. The equality isn't you're putting it in terms of power. Yes, the Son and the Holy Ghost are as powerful as the Father. But if there's a CEO, you're as much a human being as any CEO, and you may even be more physically powerful, but you've agreed with him that you're going to recognize his authority to make decisions or her decision to make the decisions. And so the the problem here isn't one of power, precisely because there's a pre-agreement, if you will, as to how the, the power operates and who has preeminence if there is a decision to be made. 
the problem is that you've assumed that in your analogy something that's false about CEOs, and that's because CEOs have greater authority than anybody else just by virtue of the fact they're the CEO. And that's what chief means in the CEO, chief executive officer. That just clarifies. So I'm saying, you're saying basically that Christ and the Holy Ghost aren't co-gods necessarily. They're not equal like that. They are employees of a CEO type relationship. No, they have a loving relationship. I can agree with my own father that I'll always recognize his authority because of all the gifts he's given to me. That doesn't mean that I'm, I'm less powerful than my father. And in fact, at this point, I'm more powerful. But if, if my father were to make a decision and ask me to abide by it because I have such gratitude for all that he's done for me, I would. Now listen to me because you're my sons. I'm, I'm giving you a good reason to do everything I tell you to do. The bottom line is, is that when you have an agreement like this to recognize each other in this way, it resolves problems of power, but it also resolves the nature. The distinction isn't one of ontology or of the nature that they possess. The distinction is one of priority, and the priority results from the loving relationship that they have as a result of an agreement. Joseph Smith actually talked about this agreement, by the way. They are agreed in one, is, and that's how they can be God, according to Joseph Smith. So this has a pretty good pedigree. Well, maybe it would make more sense if so. you have person has a great idea for a company and he goes to this other person and says, hey, I have the skills to do this. And then they're co-founders, but one's the CEO, let's say the other's the CTO, you know, like the chief technology officer or something. The CEO is still CEO and the CTO says, yes, you know, I'm going to go with the decisions you make. This is your company and all that, but we're still co-founders. We're founding together, kind of like founding the relationship together. I don't know. Does that make sense? It does. I just, it's a different kind of power i wouldn't say that we're all ceos i'd say like you know well you're god of the universe you're god of relationships with humans and you're god of being omnipresent and making people understand truth and maybe that's how it is they have different roles but i'm just saying like if they were all equally gods you'd think that maybe sometimes jesus is subordinate to the father but what if they just agreed differently that Jesus was now the preeminent one and and the Father was subordinate to him for a little while or in something? And I don't think the universe would fall out of existence in that because there's still a governing power. It doesn't really matter which of these three is what unless they're not really equal. Well, according to what Dad's saying, isn't the power emanating from the Father? Like if the Father's subordinate, then it's no longer him emanating the power in but remember, the Father also depends on, on his relationship, loving relationship with the Holy Ghost and the Son to have his. That's what I'm getting at. The Father has no power unless they all have this relationship. They can order it any way they want. It just so happens that the scriptures have told us how they've ordered it, and all glory is given to the Father. So. Okay. I was just wondering logically if you had any thoughts on that. I understand that the scriptures are saying that. I understand the tradition. I'm just saying, theoretically, they could switch it up and it wouldn't make any difference. Well, well, let's go to this, and maybe this is too much of a tangent, but so the time when the Father was on a planet and took upon himself a body, was he subordinate to the Son at that point? Remember, my theory is, is twofold, and that is that there had to be a God that maintained the order of the universe while right. he was Right, so born. the Father would have emptied yeah. himself of divinity, still retaining the essential characteristics of divinity, and then... He has a divine nature just like we have a divine nature at that Correct. point. He doesn't have a fullness of divine nature because he's emptied himself of that divine nature. But during that time, the Son and Holy Ghost remain in unity to be the sovereign of the universe during that time. And the Father would have recognized them as such. And so, yeah, I mean, there would be a time period during which the Father would say, and, and maybe he even prayed to them, 
I mean, we're all speculating beyond, you know, we've got speculation squared going on here. Right. And this have... is just me bringing this up since, you know, we're asking what if they switch roles and oh, this is a situation where possibly they did switch roles. Exactly. Possibly they did. And, and there would be a good reason why they would. For instance, there's a good reason why the son would leave this most fulfilling of all possible relationships and the greatest love possible, because it seems insane on its face to do that. But maybe out of love for us in order to bring us into the relationship and to make it possible for us to be redeemed and to go through the experiences that we do, it's necessary for one of them to become mortal. But they all, and we've argued this previously, there's a good reason for each of them to become mortal in any event, and that's because there's a certain kind of knowledge that can only be gained from experience, and that's experiential knowledge. And so each of the divine persons has an overriding reason to experience immortality. So I think you may have given us an actual instance where maybe they altered the order of who was preeminent during a particular period of time. But it, logically, it could be that way, and it seems that it may well have been that way, given the way that I'm looking at it. But obviously, all of this is, is non-scriptural and, and not something that's binding on anybody to accept. And then, so understanding your view, just so we're clear, leaving out any of those type of circumstances where that would have happened, this is something that, again, goes back to the very beginning, just as the same as the offering the relationship and the re- receiving the relationship. This is something where, from the very beginning in every moment, the Father has offered this relationship and the Son has chosen to subordinate. Well, you're so, making it too correct? simple because there is no beginning in Mormonism. Well, like but, I'm saying, this yeah. goes all the way for every moment and every time they could choose, the son has chosen this role of... Exactly. You know. With the possible exception that you mentioned. And there may be a lot that we don't know here, but that seems to be how it logically falls out. I agree with that. So the next section is the divine kind. So kind of what do you mean by that? And then we'll get into it in detail next time. What's essential to understand, I think, to understand both the Mormon concept of God, the nature of the social trinity in Mormonism, and the notion of deification or becoming gods in Mormonism, is exactly what we mean by the assertion that we are the same divine kind, or that we are the same kind at all. And so that's something that will take a while for us to unpack, and I guess we'll get to that next time. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.